everybody. It's your favorite reconstructionist, Eric Brown and Phil Relly, and welcome to episode number 21 of the one and only show, bringing you tips and tricks to working vehicle collision cases from the best experts in the industry every Wednesday. Today's topic is, did you see that? So sit back, relax, grab your expert angle coffee mug, settle in, three, two, one, off we go. Every year, traffic crashes claim the lives of over a million people and account for over $500 billion of injuries around the world. A small select group of people from police to attorneys to expert investigators are tasked with getting justice for the victims, protecting the rights of involved parties, and ensuring the story is told accurately and honestly. Unfortunately, we believe that is an impossible task without the right team of experts. If you agree, then keep on listening for actionable tips from leading experts across various industries that you can start taking today to elevate your professional game. If you disagree, then tune in anyway and let us convince you with our ideas. We are Eric Brown and Phil Rally, and this is Crash Tech, the expert angle. Welcome back to the show, guys. Crash Tech, the expert angle podcast is brought to you by Crash Tech Reconstruction Services. If you have an accident that you need answers for or you think the other side has it wrong, Crash Tech can help. Connect with us at www.crashtechreconstruction.com to submit your case for a free review. Phil, man, do we have a special guest today for everybody. So, you know, we had Jeff Mutard on and Jeff is incredible. And so when we were talking to him and originally setting up the show, he offered to have a couple of his other scientists join us on the show. And so today, and forgive me if I butcher the name, I, I don't think I will. I think I'm going to get it right, but I'm, I'm crossing my fingers here. But we have Dr. Darlene Edward. Is that right? Very good. Yes. Um, so Darlene is with us and she is fantastic. I've been following her career um, as she's been working with Jeff at the uh, Crash Safety Solutions. Um, and so she is she's doing fantastic things. So she has her master's degree in applied psychology and a PhD in human factor psychology from Clemson University. Um, during her time at Clemson, specialized in conducting research that applied to concepts in vision science and transportation safety and sought to find ways in which bicyclists and pedestrians can make themselves more noticeable to drivers in order to prevent collisions on shared roadways. Uh, just recently, she joined uh, the Crash Safety Research Center as a scientist, January 2020, and uh, she contributes to the crash safety investigations and research on driver behavior. So, Darlene, first of all, congratulations on the PhD. Thank congratulations. you. Congratulations. And joining Thank Jeff's you. team, uh, because Thank as you, you notice, uh, I actually take my haircut cues from him. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's only a matter of time till I come, come out there with some clippers and uh, we'll, we'll get you on the bandwagon, too. <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, so this is really neat. And I think I didn't realize at least that there was a PhD in human factors psychology. So that's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell us just a little bit about what your degrees, like what, what is, that? I mean, what is human or, or human factor psychology and, and what's applied psychology? Because I think everybody knows psychology is a degree, right? But right. You know, so yeah, talk to us a little bit about like what's your, what is the degree and like what, what can that do for, like what can you do? What does that make your specialty? Right. So with a regular degree in psychology, so I have my, my bachelor's in psychology and that's very general. And then as you go for more advanced degrees, you get more and more specialized. And so applied psychology is a little bit like experimental psychology, where you learn research methods and, and statistics and learn how to apply, you know, various psychological principles 
um, in an applied settings. And then human factor psychology, uh, we study human behavior, and then we study how humans interact with technology, and then we work to make technology safe and user-friendly. Um, and so my research focuses more on the safety aspect with um, transportation safety and finding solutions for making pedestrians and bicyclists more visible on roadways. Nice. Technologies. That's awesome. I was going to say, I was really nervous to have uh, somebody with a psychology degree come on here, especially because Phil's on here. Um, <laughs> but because you're talking about, you know, making things safe, maybe, maybe she could get you a, a better helmet, Phil. <laughs> Do you ride? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, you know, I can't help it. He's an easy target. Um, but no, so that's awesome. So, all right. So you're researching Clemson. So let's dive into some of this background um, because, you know, obviously I'd asked you to just send me some bio stuff and some of your background. And a lot of it is really, really neat. Um, and so your research at Clemson applied concepts from vision science to transportation safety. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what is that research that you did? Right. So I worked at the Visual Perception and Performance Lab in the psych department at Clemson University under Dr. Uh, Rick Tyrell. And we basically, um, we studied how light enters into the eye and then, you know, as it travels up to the brain, what kinds of processing needs to go on in order for us to make meaning out of it. And then we, we studied visual limitations for humans and then also uh, human capabilities in terms of visual perception. And then we studied ways to compensate for human visual limitations. And then um, we studied uh, visual strengths and then how to capitalize on that. Holy smokes. Okay. So you may be the smartest person I've ever talked to in my life. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, but so let me, so then is this all about the, the rods and the cones in your eyes? Exactly. Yeah, okay. So that's part of the visual system. Okay. So, because I think, and I may have them backwards, but the, the, the rods are like your daytime and cones are the, around the exterior of the eye that you use at night. You Do I have them backwards? Flipped. Okay. So I have them yep. backwards. So cones, and yeah, go ahead. So I have to ask you this because I'm curious. And so I was in the military and when I did my driver's training for the Marine Corps, we did a nighttime driving portion and so it was one of those things where if you walked into a lit room, you had to like keep one eye closed and one eye open so that the closed eye, if you walked back outside, was you didn't mm -hmm. have to wait for it to adapt to the dark. Is that actually legit or is that crap? Like, is the military just making that up? <laughs> nope. Actually, so um, I have a background in astronomy. And uh, so with your, your retina, so on the back of your eyeball, you have a light sensitive membrane and that's where the cones and the rods are. And the cones are, are very densely packed in the area of the retina that processes your, your central vision where you have fine detail, you can recognize objects and you can see color. And then in your periphery, then you have rods. And so the cones are very sensitive to very bright environments. Uh, whereas the rods are sensitive in, in darker environments. And so in terms of astronomy, uh, for, for people who do like amateur astronomy or even professional astronomy, like in observatories, you have to dark adapt. And so what that means is you have to spend time in a dark environment and allow your, your eyes to adapt to the darkness so that um, the, the cones, uh, they, um, in dark environments, the cones don't respond as much and so, it, but it takes time for, for them to, to kind of level out and then the, the rods become optimally sensitive in darker environments. And so oftentimes with stargazing at night, 
if you look up into the sky and you see the stars, um, you notice them better in your periphery if you're dark adapted, and that's called averted vision. And and so your 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 rods are more sensitive in in darker environments and allow you to to navigate through your your environments at night. That that's, explains why you walk into walls, Eric. <laughs> Trust me, there's a lot of explanations for why I walk into walls. <laughs> I think the doors move, honestly. I think the, I the door, yeah, the doorway in, you know, in my house, it just moves constantly. It's like moving target. So, all right. So, and that brings up an interesting point that you see things out in your periphery better at night. And so when you're driving at night and, and I would say most drivers focus straight ahead in their, in their lane. And so most pedestrians, I would say, are along the sides of the roadway, hopefully, I mean, sometimes they come out into the lanes. Right. And so where, when you're dealing with nighttime crashes, I mean, what are some of the things, and I, and I guess I'm asking you to just generalize it, um, mm -hmm. but you know, and I know it can't be, it's not the same for every crash, but generally then, is a pedestrian actually more visible walking on the side of the road or walking in the middle of the lane in the headlights? Well, I guess it depends on the context. Um, so like, obviously if a, a pedestrian is wearing conspicuity aids and they're on the side of the road, um, they could be visible to the driver. Whereas if they're not wearing any conspicuity aids and they're in the roadway, um, I guess like far enough away that their the vehicle headlights are not shining on them, then they might not be very conspicuous. It all depends on where the, uh, the pedestrian is in the roadway and then, you know, what they're wearing and then where are they with respect to the driver's headlights. All right. So now, and you use way bigger words than I can even pronounce. Have, so I'm going to try and say this without screwing it up, but conspicuity aids, yeah. you're talking like a reflective vest. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So the word conspicuity, it just, it's more of like a synonym for recognizability or noticeability. Okay. Cause we have a lot of police officers that listen to the show. I mean, Phil, both police officers. Um, and so we always harp on it, Phil. I mean, I don't know about you, but here in Ohio, our, our sheriff's uniforms, we have black shirts. And it drives me crazy when I see the new guys get out of their car on a nighttime crash and walk around without a vest on. And I'm like, hey, idiot, like <laughs> you wanna, right. wanna you maybe teach? put something on that isn't black? <laughs> and uh, right. you know, and then, and then when, when I teach in the, when I teach in the academy, that's one of the things that kind of gets their attention. I always tell them, I'll be like, if I ever find out you get hit by a car at a scene and I get wind of it that you, you know, weren't wearing a vest. I'm not carrying your casket. Yeah. They can, dra they can drag you down the road. I'm yep. not carrying you. You did yeah. it yourself. So let me ask you this. And this might be a question. If you want to defer this to, to Swarup, that, that's fine. We can, we can do that because he's coming on, um, I think, in, in another couple of weeks here. Uh, so. But so the, the question that, that I kind of want to know, and like I said, it, it may be more him with caplets. I don't know. But the, the other thing, too, that I learned in the military is that we didn't wear a lot of black in our uniforms. Like if you look at the Marine Corps uniforms. <laughs> mostly greens and browns and tans very little black and and even when you like would would paint your face really didn't use black because mm -hmm. black doesn't occur in nature and so it, it actually they were like black is more visible at night than like some of your dark greens browns things like that i don't know mm -hmm. I, I mean is that anything that you ever saw during your research well, so one thing, so with the military, they design camouflage, which is the opposite of a conspicuity aid. So it's designed to make um, whoever's wearing camouflage invisible, essentially. And so in daytime environments, uh, the natural colors of a, a background or, or like an environment might be the browns, the greens, um, like you would see in a camouflage outfit. 
at night, color doesn't really come into play. So basically, as daytime turns into nighttime, there's a shift in our, our vision uh, towards like the blue end of the spectrum. And, and as the, you know, the ambient light goes down, there's not enough light to, to see color anyway. Our cone photoreceptors are not as sensitive uh, in dark environments and cones are what allow us to perceive color. And so at night, camouflage would just be perceived as dark anyway. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask you something, Darlene. You know, mm -hmm. and Eric and I have heard this time and time again over the years, where the question it always seems to get asked, or the question yes. they always yes, they Phil, always, I am more attractive than you. Shut. <laughs> um, but a lot of people ask. Well, the assumption is once an object enters the beam of the headlight, it, it's visible. And that always seems like the question on nighttime crashes. Well, you know, where would the car have been when the pedestrian or the bicyclist or the dog, whatever it is, enters the beam of the headlight? Because that's when it first would have become available, you know, or would have been first visible. And obviously that's not. I mean, there's, there's so much more that goes into that. Exactly. Right. And even with the vehicle headlights, you know, they project to a certain distance. And as the, the, the greatest distance that they project to, that light level might not be enough to allow a driver to, to see what it's, you know, illuminating at the, you know, very edge of the, the um, headlight beam. So then let me dive down this road, because another word in, in this, in your, um, the reference material that you sent me, another word jumped out that I'd never heard before. And so I'm kind of curious about and I think this kind of leads down a little bit where Phil just was of yeah just because an object's in the headlights it may not be visible um unless it might be a pedestrian or a bicycle that's moving and so mm -hmm. you put in uh this word called biomotion and so so to me I and I might be wrong but biomotion because like biomechanics stuff like that is all dealing with the motion of the body so I would have to assume biomotion is dealing with a moving target that you're trying to perceive? So specific to an organic organism, so like a biological organism, it could be an animal, it could be a human, um, but basically uh, living organisms, so like animals and humans, they, have, uh, they um, exhibit biological motion. And um, our brains are sensitive to uh, detecting and then recognizing biological motion. Um, and it's species specific. And so we humans are really good at detecting human biomotion or the movement patterns of other human beings. And we're so good at it that we just need to see a few cues to a person's movement and we can know immediately, ah, oh, that's a person up ahead. Um, so I'll give you an example. Last week I was driving at night and I had my headlights on, of course. And as I was driving down an unlit roadway. <laughs> Good disclaimer, by the way. <laughs> right? She's like, I swear to God, I have my headlights on, folks. Well, the headlights are important and I'll tell you why. So up ahead, um, pretty far away, I saw these two glowing dots moving across the roadway. And immediately I knew that those were retroflective dots on a pedestrian shoes as they were crossing the roadway. And so all I all saw right. were two dots on the, the pedestrian shoes. And I saw that movement pattern as they were walking and I knew, oh, that's a person there. I've got to pay attention to them. And so with um, the vehicle headlights being on, vehicle headlights, they're close enough to a, a driver's eyes that when the, the headlights shine onto retroreflective material, which contains tiny glass beads, that uh, serve to reflect light back to the light source, 
the vehicle headlights then reflect off of the retroreflective material back to a driver's eyes and allow the retroreflective material to appear to glow. Oh, so there's actually like a specific measurement between the, the eyes and the level of the headlights. Right. Yeah, they're designed to be close enough to a driver's eyes to allow retroreflective material like retroreflective signs and then even the, the street paint to appear to glow to drivers. Okay, so then I have to ask, and maybe this is insensitive. I don't know. Eh, you know, if this is the worst thing I ever say, I guess, you know, whatever. So trust what me, about, it won't be. <laughs> <laughs> what about like the 90-year-old lady then who actually, like you see them driving, right? And, and they're looking between the hump of their gauge cluster and the, and the top of their steering wheel because they're not even tall enough to get over their steering wheel. Wouldn't that make everything then more visible to them at night? Because it seems like they don't ever mm -hmm. see anything. Like they just run everything over. I mean, I guess it, it could, I guess it depends on the quality of the retroreflective material, you know? So, okay. so basically with that, um, the closer a light source is to your eyes pointing at retroreflective material, the brighter the, the retroreflective material is going to be depending on the, the quality of the retroreflective material. So then on the flip side, would it be important to take into account? Like if, if me and Phil are handling a crash, right? And, and let's say you get one of these lifted pick -em up trucks, like Phil gets down there in the county. Okay. And so, you know, you got this big, tall F-250, F-350, something like that. And then you get like a seven foot tall guy in the cab. So he's sitting way, way up and, you know, in, in trucks, you can adjust the seat height and everything else. So let's say he, he has it adjusted pretty high. So his head is like right up towards the uh, headliner. Is that creating a far enough spread from the retro reflective material to be problematic or, mm. or like, is that something then that we don't really even have to take into it? Like, is that still an acceptable range? I think that, you know, you'd have to measure the distance from the headlights to the driver's eye height. And then, you know, like see what it looks like when, you know, you're investigating that crash to see, you know, does, does the distance between the driver's eyes to the headlights make a difference with, you know, whatever you're looking at, whether it's, you know, retroreflective material. All right. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. And then, so, oh, go ahead, Phil. I was going to say, I was just wondering, so a lot of what, you know, what, as I'm listening, it, it still also has to incorporate the probability factor, you know, what they're used to. Mm -hmm. If you get Eric, for example, who's never seen, you know, uh, cornfield or anything that remotely looks like the country environment i have a cornfield here so get, <laughs> inner city kid um, but no pictures. i mean but, but but if you get a city person for example that travels into the into the country i mean that's not what they're used to the environment they're used to traveling in on a regular basis so you know to what jeff was saying when we had him on you know you look at probability what they're used to seeing what they're accustomed to there's a lot mm -hmm. of things that are that are not going to they may pick up on a pedestrian much faster because they're used to seeing pedestrians all the time in the city moving um and it might be you know more problematic for an animal where the well, person who's always been in the country not in the city is going to see the animal before they would see the person and that was actually going to be kind of my question too, to collaborate on Phil. So let's say, because, so we just recently gotten this thing here in, in Northeastern Ohio, where black bears are starting to come out from PA and they're, they're coming into to Northeastern Ohio. And so we actually had a driver coming down the road the other day and they, they were like, man, I was coming down the road and this black bear walked out in front of me and they're like, I could, I didn't know what it was. You know, and they're like, I was just mm -hmm. sitting there staring at it. And then eventually they actually drove off the side of the road. <laughs> and, uh, you know, was that at night? Off. Yeah, it was at night. at night. And so 
I mean, you know, you said like, we're really, really good at picking up people. But if you have something like that that you've never seen before, what mm-hmm. kind of effect does that have on perception reaction time? Or, or can you not, I, don't, I mean, like, are, are you specialized enough to be able to relate it to perception reaction or, or not? Well, basically, so, you know, with being as that a black bear, you wouldn't normally encounter that in a roadway, especially at night. I don't know if there are streetlights on that roadway. Um, but there would be some sort of like mental gymnastics to try to figure out, you know, since it's a surprise, you know, what is that? And yeah. then the other thing with biomotion, like you need to be able to see the biomotion. And so with a black bear at night, I'm not sure that you'd be able to, to see so much of the movement of the bear to allow you to more quickly recognize like, oh, that's a bear's movement. Um, I don't know if that would so much come out, you know, just by you know being surprised by a bear crossing the road. Yeah. So did you guys run these tests done by age groups? Like, I'd be curious to know like, does it take a 16 year old driver longer to determine that it's a pedestrian walking in the road than like a, a 60 year old driver who's been driving way, way longer and has way more experience? So I didn't measure age, um, but I guess like with age, you know, it all depends on the visual um, health of the the observer. So, you know, if, if, um, if, you know, the older person has um, sensitivity to glare or they have cataracts, they might not be able to detect and then recognize, you know, a pedestrian or bicyclist in the roadway as quickly as a visually healthy individual. So I think, you know, the visual impairments of an individual and the same thing goes for younger people. If they have visual impairments that might impede on their ability to detect and then recognize vulnerable road users. So then I have to ask, all right, so young drivers, you brought up visual impairments. So uh, talking about the cones and rides and your eyes and everything else, what about nighttime crashes where your young driver is either picking up their phone constantly every, every two to three seconds. And, and I mean, Phil, you see it sitting in the median of the highway when you work night shifts, right? You can see the glow in the car from people's cell phone screens. What's that doing to your night vision? I mean, like once that, because does it, be, it always seems like a fast light, like your eyes adjust to light really, really fast. And then it takes like 20 minutes to adjust yep. back to dark. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that would interfere with a, a person's dark adaptation for sure. Okay. And, and so what happens is when you're, when you're um, presented with a very bright light um, you, in your photoreceptors, there's photopigment. And so when you are, you know, in a dark environment and then all of a sudden you're presented with a, a bright light, your photopigment gets used up. And then what happens is you're, it takes time for that photopigment to be built up again in order to allow you, you basically see the after image of the light. Um, like if you've, you know, had your picture taken with a, a flash, you yeah. notice that you see the after image of the flash for a while. And that's because um, your your photopigment has been used up and it takes time for that to get replenished. And so with a, a dark environment, it would take time for them to, you know, get re-ad- uh, dark adapted. I'm just thinking on on cases where you have, you know, an individual because we always look at the phone, you know, especially when when, you know, and Phil, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you go out to a scene, one of the first things you always will get is a consent to search and search the phone and see when the last time they got a text message was. And so if you have somebody driving on a dark county road and, and they hit a pedestrian or a bicyclist and maybe they got a text eight minutes ago. And it shows that it's red. It's no longer pending. Yeah. Okay. So the, the text didn't happen right at the time of the crash. They weren't texting and driving, but would that, I mean, would an eight minute time span, is that a significant factor of like, man, if they, 
illuminated the screen and stared at it, you know, and then put it down. Are there, are their eyes still adjusting? Like what's that length of time that it takes your eyes just on average. And we're not going to quote you. Like, I'm not going to type <laughs> up my own paper and be like, well, Darlene said, um, but I mean, like on average, like it, how long does it take for your eyes to get back into like they're, they're full on driving down a dark road, night vision mode. I think it depends on the brightness of whatever light source um, you're, you're being presented with. Um, and so it, it could take, you know, up to 20 minutes. It can take less than that, like depending on, you know, the, the brightness of, you know, if it's a cell phone, the, the cell phone screen. Okay. Uh, you know, you see a lot of people driving down the road and they use, um, they have, you know, GPS either on their, uh, their infotainment center or their, you know, up on the, up on the windshield and it's constantly on. So it's, it's constantly a, a light source, um, kind of beaming back at them over a period of time. Does that, does that cause any problems with night vision or do you think they, they, the brain ends up adapting, overcoming and adjusting to it? And it really is a non-issue. Well, and that's what that- I was going to ask the same thing too, with our, with our MDTs and our cruisers. <laughs> I'll be hands yeah. down cops, biggest distracted drivers on the face. Yeah. We got that laptop that the screen's shining in our face the whole time we're driving on midnights. I mean, is that Four different yeah. radios? <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. that brings up a really good point And something that I wanted to mention is that when you're driving at night, being is that, you know, you have your own vehicle headlights, which are shining onto the road. You have, you know, whatever elements are on your dashboard, you know, the, the different controls, um, you know, if you have a screen on your, your center console, um, and then even you're exposed to streetlights, you're exposed to oncoming traffic. Drivers are never fully dark adapted, even in, in fairly dark environments, if there's oncoming traffic and then even the elements in the vehicle. And so um, there's different levels of, um, I guess, our, our light sensitivity or, or, or being in the presence of different light levels. Photopic vision is when you're in a, a bright environment, such as like a bright sunny day or in a fully lit room. Um, and then there's photo, uh, scotopic uh, visual environments where there's no light. There's no ambient photons. It's completely dark. And then mesopic uh, visual environments, there's some light. So that is what we typically drive in, being is that there, there's some light from you know various elements in our vehicle and then the roadway environment. So our, never, our eyes are never fully dark adapted at right. night. So then besides the the fact that it would just look ridiculously cool. So then what do you think about if I started wearing an eye patch at night and like, you know, every time lights come on, I can just switch it back and forth so I can keep one eye dark adapted. <laughs> I think that that might make it very difficult to drive. <laughs> but it would look awesome. It. it would look awesome though. Would it not? Like that'd be sweet. I'm going to this... be like a pirate. <laughs> right. I'm going to put a skull and crossbones on the side of my truck. <laughs> Welcome to my life, Darlene. Welcome to my life. <laughs> so, no, so okay. Let's talk, so I, let's talk I think about we, bicycles. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we beat you up on nighttime wrecking in, in the way the eyes work and stuff enough. And I do. Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into bicycles. Yeah. And because this is, this is really like your dissertation and everything was on bicycles. And yeah. so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so we talked about nighttime and you know, and, and the experiments that you ran there. Um, but you also mentioned with the biomotion, it can be useful during daytime crashes. Um, mm-hmm. So what can pedestrians and bicyclists do to highlight their biomotion, I guess, during daytime? 
Like, is right. there steps that people could take or are there things that we should be looking for as the investigators that were like, ooh, that would be more visible than this? Right. And so oftentimes when you think of like daytime driving environments, you think like, oh, if you're going to go out for a run or a bike ride, you think, oh, like, you know, the sun's out. I'm I'm visible. Drivers can see me. But, you know, crashes still occur during the daytime. And so it's very important for bicyclists and pedestrians to make themselves visible to, to drivers even during the daytime. And so at my lab, we conducted several uh, daytime conspicuity or recognizability studies um, assessing, you know, bicyclists. And we found that bicyclists can use lights to highlight their, their motion. We've had several studies where we've put lights on the heels of the rider's pedaling feet. And we found that that can help drivers to um, more quickly recognize that that's a bicyclist up ahead. And then we've also studied fluorescent yellow apparel. And so like one study that we did, we had a, a stationary test bicyclist on the side of a roadway and I drove participants around a designated open road route that contained the bicyclist. And then we had participants press a button when they were confident that they were seeing a bicyclist up ahead and the bicyclist displayed various configurations of clothing. Uh, one configuration that we had was all black clothing. Another configuration, the rider was wearing a fluorescent yellow jersey plus black leggings. And then we added fluorescent yellow leg covers to the mix. So a, a fluorescent yellow jersey, black leggings, and then fluorescent yellow leg covers. And then our last configuration in that study, we had um, the fluorescent yellow jersey plus the fluorescent yellow leg covers, but the surface area of the fluorescent yellow material was cut in half due to a, a checker pattern. And we found that the rider wearing a fluorescent yellow jersey with black leggings was recognized from uh, no greater distances than when wearing all black clothing, which we were really surprised about because During a lot of riders wear brightly colored jerseys with neutral leggings or shorts. Um, however, with the fluorescent yellow leg covers, we found that the rider was recognized from over three times greater distances than when wearing the fluorescent yellow jersey plus black leggings or all black clothing. And do you, I mean, are you kind of attributing that to the motion of the legs? Yes. Okay. Yep. And when we interviewed participants in that study after we ran them, participants, you know, when they saw the fluorescent yellow leg cover conditions, they said, oh, I saw the, the pedaling um, legs and I, I knew that that was a bicyclist. Whereas with the all black clothing or the fluorescent yellow jersey plus black leggings, uh, participants said, you know, often like they they saw the bicyclist, but they weren't sure what it was. And then, you know, sometimes they thought it was a walker or a runner, and not necessarily a bicyclist. But the leg covers made it, it made the bicyclist, you know, immediately recognizable as a bicyclist. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. When you when you talk about light on on bikes, you know, we see a lot of um, in the rural areas, especially people riding bikes at night and they'll put a, uh, a light on the back of the bike, usually a red light, but it's hard to, at night in an unlit environment with a single light source ahead of you. Mm -hmm. It's hard to judge, you know, your distance. Kind of like if you remember the, the, the study with the trains where so many people were getting killed at railroad crossings and the trains that had the locomotive had the single, the single white light on the front. Well, then they added the two small lights below it and those two small lights pulsated and that gave people, you know, a better ability to gauge distance, how far away that object is, and, and you know, adjust for closure and so on. And so on a bicycle, 
would you see the same thing or recommend the same thing for, for bicyclists? Maybe not a single light source, maybe a side-by-side -side or a, a flash or a strobe or something to yeah, so um, we we have seen that with with a single light source, it's really hard to localize it in space. Um, and as you're so, if you're driving toward a bicyclist with a, a seat post light, um, the the rate that the seat post light might grow or or um, appear to to grow on your retina, it might not change all that much. And so it's really hard to judge the distance to the bicyclist. However, we found that putting lights on the heels of the rider's pedaling feet, or even combining a seat post mounted light with the pedaling heel uh, lights, mm -hmm. that that helps drivers or could help drivers to more quickly recognize, you know, that there there's an object there, and it it helps drivers to more quickly perceive the focus of expansion we call it, or the rate that the um, the bicyclist would grow on your in your visual field as you're approaching the bicyclist. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it yeah. does. Yeah, because we actually, we have a biking club up here by us and we always see them riding and they all have the, the seat post lights and then they also have the red lights on the back of their helmet. And it's mm -hmm. like, and they're so visible. Yeah, because when you see them far away, the lights seem really, really close together. But as you come right. up on them, that gap just grows and grows and grows. And you're like, holy exactly. crap, I'm closing on this thing like crazy. So, yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you a question then. Are the lights as important during the day? I mean, because look at how many bicycle crashes we get during the day. And like, I, I don't know about you, Phil. Typically, I, I always overlook, uh, you know, up and up until now and, and really starting to dive into uh, some of the human factor stuff and you start to see stuff can be important. Um, but like, you know, is it still important to have lights on during the day or is that just can we discard it? Can we discard it on a bright, sunny day? Yeah, you would think that during the daytime, a lot of people think that since it's daytime, the sun's out and, you know, you you can see your visual environment that, you know, bicyclists might not need lights during the daytime. But my research, I've done several studies uh, assessing bicycle taillights during the daytime, and each one has found that using lights during the daytime can help drivers to more quickly uh, recognize bicyclists and from farther distances than if they're not using any lights at all. And I mean, it depends on the optical qualities of the light as well. Right. So then I, I got to ask, because I'm curious to know what your answer is going to be on, on this question when I was reading through them. So, uh, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that are out there surrounding the interactions between drivers of cars and trucks and things like that and vulnerable road users, which I'm, I'm you know, thinking are like your pedestrians, your bicyclists, stuff like that. Um, so what are some of the misconceptions between uh, or, or surrounding the interactions between them? Right. So, you know, driving is a very complex task. And so a primary task while you're driving is to, you know, steer, use the steering wheel, um, use the, the brake and the, um, the gas pedal, and then also, you know, scan the roadway for hazards. However, there's so much going on both, you know, outside of the vehicle and the, the roadway environment, um, which spans, you know, all in the whole visual field of the driver, and then also within the, the, the vehicle. So there's the, the dashboard displays and then there's stuff going on in a driver's head. And so there's so much that, you know, a driver is paying attention to that they can't possibly perceive everything that's going on. Our, our brains are designed to take in the gist of a, of a situation and then our brains fill in whatever, you know, is missing. Um, and so that's called gist encoding. And so one of the misconceptions is that, you know, 
people think a lot of pedestrians and bicyclists think that just because I can see a vehicle approaching me, then the, the, the driver must be able to see me. And that's not always the case. A lot of times pedestrians and bicyclists overestimate their, um, their conspicuity or their visibility to drivers. Yeah. And that's, and so you always hear like the term multitasking and like, people are like, I'm so good at multitasking. And you hear from cops the most right? Oh, we're trained to multitask. And I don't know about you, but yeah, like in everything that I've read and research that I've done, multitasking is bull crap. Like it's baloney. Like, you know, like you said, it's, it's that task switching, Um, you know, and, and, and I think what people fail to, to do is, is I think people fail to, to recognize that like they think that being able to switch tasks back and forth and back and forth and back really, really fast is the same as multitasking. Right, right. It's task switching. And and sometimes we're not even very good at that. And so we fool ourselves into thinking that we can multitask because I mean sometimes we can task switch very rapidly. Yeah. And and, and it, a, it was so interesting. One of the one of the tests that somebody had me do to prove that you can't multitask is uh you had to write the alphabet A through Z while counting backwards from a hundred to one out loud to a partner. And like, it's, it's like, it's freaking impossible. You can't do it. You have to keep mm-hmm. stopping. Like you either have to stop writing to count or stop counting to write, but you can't right. do both. And it's so weird. And it's just such a simple, you would think anybody could do that. So, right. so let, I guess, let me ask you this. Then. So how is that misconception or the misconception you talked about? How's that influenced your research and, and things that you're doing to, to advance your field and, and things like that? Mm-hmm. And so since there's so much going on in any given roadway environment, pedestrians and bicyclists are competing with the other elements in the roadway environment and within the vehicle and within the driver's head for the limited attentional resources that the driver has. And so therefore, my research tries to find ways to help capture a driver's attention uh, by making the pedestrian or bicyclist more conspicuous or more recognizable through using uh, conspicuity aids like retroreflective material or uh, for nighttime use um, or lights for both daytime and nighttime use or brightly colored clothing um, for daytime use. And like looking at different configurations of how can pedestrians and bicyclists use these materials uh, to help drivers to recognize them more quickly on roadways. So would you say that? Oh, sorry, Phil, go ahead. Well, and you can, I don't know. I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it. There's a number of my, companies. Mine or Darlene's? Not yours. I don't want to hear anything you got to say. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> th- there's a number of companies out there that train uh, professional drivers, like commercial motor vehicle drivers. They even, uh, some companies train fleet drivers. And you hear from time to time, you'll hear the uh, the instructors for new drivers, for teen drivers, Um they oftentimes will, will, will tell them when you're driving, you need to keep your eyes moving around, keep looking around, constantly scanning your environment, looking, looking, looking. And, you know, at first I kind of drank the company Kool-Aid with that and kind of agreed with it. But the more and more you start digging into, um, you know, perception and then response and so on, I, I wonder if that's actually more problematic because if the, if the person is, if the person is constantly scanning, they're not really scanning looking for anything because they don't know what they're looking for. They're just kind of randomly looking around because that's what they've been trained to do. And so they adapted that theory that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
But in doing that, you're 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 just aim you're pointlessly just looking around for nothing in particular. So you're not really acquiring, you're not giving your brain the opportunity for something that's moving, like you said, the biomotion to trip your brain to say, whoa, pay attention to that. Something's coming at you because you may be scanning and just looking right over it because if it's moving and your head's moving and your eyes are moving, you're reducing that bi- that that chance for the biomotion to trip your your senses to to draw your attention to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so with, you know, learning how to drive, I, I've been told, you know, to keep your eyes moving. I remember being told that by my driving instructor and, you know, new drivers do that, um, but they, they're not necessarily knowing what they're looking for. As you get more experience with driving, you tend, and Jeff might have talked about this last week, um, you tend to forecast. And so you're looking generally like in the, in the, the forward view of, of the roadway. Uh, or of your vehicle through the dashboard, and then you're you're scanning ahead, um, you know, very very small amounts of areas, and in your peripheral vision, your peripheral vision is very good at picking up on on motion. And so, if something's going to dart across the road, your your peripheral um, vision could pick up on it then, and your central vision is used for fine details um, and recognizing things. And so, then once something is perceived in your periphery, you can make an eye movement over to that hopefully soon enough to respond. Um, but I mean, with driving, you know, our, our eyes move around for a reason and the center part of our vision is what we um, use in order to pick up on fine details and, you know, can recognize objects. And so we should be looking around the roadway environment, but maybe, you know, carefully, like um, looking with purpose. Yeah. I like that. Kind of looking with, with purpose other than just mm-hmm. like aimlessly, like la la la. <laughs> like yeah, right. I mean, you, you see that a lot. You'll see them, you know, the the a lot of the student drivers, especially, you'll see them look in the mirror, look in the right, look in the left. Well, in that mirror or the, the rear view, right, left, they've missed everything ahead of them. They've they've done mm-hmm. a good job of seeing maybe what's behind them, but that's potentially the bicyclist or pedestrian that they've already hit that's just tumbling down the road behind them. Because they never gave their brain the opportunity or the periphery of the opportunity to pick up that bio motion, like you said, and right. here we are. So I just, I mean, it, like I said, at first, you know, I, I do think it it has a, a a place, but I think to your point, I think it does have to have a purpose. You need to be not taking such wide swoops, you know, narrow it down some, you know, right. let your eyes do what they're designed to do. Right. Yeah. And so I think driving instructors, you know, they should tell their their student drivers, you know, you're looking for hazards. You're looking for pedestrians, bicyclists, animals that might run out into the roadway, yeah. construction, you know, tell tell students, educate them on what to, to look for. Give them scenarios and that will help them to learn more how to, to look around their, their roadway environment. Mm-hmm. So during a daytime crash then, and, and so this is something I'm curious about because we, we get this a lot. You know, where you have a a car coming up to a T intersection or any kind of intersection, really, but they're coming up on their road and they pull up to a stop sign. And as the driver, you know, they pull up and they do like every driver does. They they stop and then they they start to pull like through the crosswalk so they can get a better view of of what cross traffic's doing. And when they do that, it never fails. A bicyclist will always ride off the sidewalk right into the path of the car and, and the bicyclist gets run over. And so I don't know. I mean, on that, because there's so much controversy constantly between even like me and my supervisors, um, you know, or in the in the crash reconstruction world, in the private world. This is what attorneys want to know is, you know, they're like, well, 
the car is at fault because the, you know, the, the, they got to yield to everything in the, in the, in the crosswalk and this, that, and the other, but then somebody else will be like, Oh no, the bicyclist is at fault because they should have been able to see the car and they have the last chance to avoid before they rode out in front of it. But talking about like the way that you pick up in your periphery, I, I don't know. I mean, I would think that your eye would detect that motion coming, would it not? And, and should, should that not then draw your attention and be like, Oh, Hey, something's, something's moving over here and it's getting pretty close to my car. Before you respond to that, I want to piggyback because Uh as he was rambling. um, Really? I thought that was a really well thought out question. I didn't know that was a ramble. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and to piggyback onto that same question or is part of the reason why the periphery doesn't pick it up is because the driver, their mental focus is not looking for the bicyclist or the pedestrian more so than I want, I need to see what's coming left and right of me. And does that change the effectiveness of the periphery of picking up the object? Yeah. So it all depends on the context. Um, and so, I mean, with, with visual attention, um, so you might be looking right at something and not even registering that you're seeing it. It's called inattentional blindness. And that's because you might be visually attending or attending to something else entirely. Um, So when presented with, you know, a stop sign, uh, if you're stopped at a stop sign and then a bicyclist is coming into the crosswalk, um, even before you start driving ahead, it all depends on what is the driver visually attending to. And they might even be looking the opposite direction of the bicyclist coming from, you know, whatever direction they're coming from. They might be looking in the opposite direction of the bicyclist and then they wouldn't see the bicyclist. And then also um, the bicyclist might be too far out in there uh, to the side of their vision or the visual field that they might not even be in the visual field until it's too late to, to perceive them and then respond to them. So it all depends on, you know, the context. Yeah. So when I'm staring at you, Eric, and you think I'm paying attention, it's just, I know. I can see it. You're just staring through me. I get it. <laughs> but no. And so this is, here you go. Point of contention here. We, and, and please voice your opinion. So if you listen to this episode, feel free, leave a message on our Facebook page uh, with what your opinion is, because we have a lot of attorneys and a lot of police officers listen to this, but in Phil's um, uh, what he just brought up his little scenario. I, again, I would argue though, that you, you, I get it that you're paying attention to cross traffic, but because you're at the stop sign, your current threat would be the crosswalk. So I get it that, yes, you're paying attention to cross traffic because that's your intention. Um, but in doing that, I think you failed as the driver. It's your responsibility first to ascertain that you can make the move through the crosswalk first, mm-hmm. then worry about cross traffic. I don't know. Right. Just, just my two cents. <laughs> you want right. change? So I don't want change. Keep it. (laughs) So, um, no. And so, okay. So the last thing really that that I got to ask, because we we are starting to run up against our clock, but I want to know, um, so you're working with Jeff now. And and so you're out there uh, as a scientist at the Crash Safety Research Center. So just tell everybody, I mean, how does your research actually apply to what we do? How does it apply to crash investigations? um, And what can we kind of garner from the work that you're doing? Right. So my research, um, what we're trying to accomplish is understanding how drivers might respond to pedestrians and bicyclists in various scenarios, um, whether it's, you know, a driving environment or, you know, with various um, configurations of 
clothing or accessories on the pedestrian or bicyclist. Um, so we're looking at driver behavior. And um, so with when you're presented with a, a crash that might have a pedestrian or bicyclist, you can then look at the research, um, which is carefully controlled. And, and the reason why we carefully control our research is so that we know exactly what our participants are responding to. We control all the parameters of our, or as much of, of the parameters as we can um, so that we know that our participants are responding to our test bicyclists or pedestrian uh, in our, our various um, conditions. And so therefore we can get reliable, valid and reliable data to make valid and reliable uh, inferences from the data. And so then when presented with a pedestrian or bicyclist crash, we can then look at the data and, and the, the results, the interpretation, and then we can see like how my drivers have responded in um, like if our if the crash is similar to certain research um, that's been done, we can look at what were the results of the research and how might that be generalized to the crash. Um, it's always good to consider you know the research that's been out there and how drivers yeah. might have responded. So is, will we find your research in the IDRR program? Is that where it lives at? Yeah, it's in there. Yes. And even the research, so my my um, my dissertation, my thesis, and then other articles that I published are online. And so people can search for them. Ah, where do we get those at? Do we get them from uh, the Crash Safety Research Center or are, do you have your own website or are they on Amazon? I know if people, if people search me, they can find my articles. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. See, we're gonna have to add some now to our library. If I add them to our library and I mail them to you, can I get them autographed? <laughs> Certainly. Yes. <laughs> 10 points. All right. Um, so no, the tons and tons of great information. And so what I want to do is get everybody's final thoughts, um, except Phil's, but I mean, I guess I'll be nice and let him at least air <laughs> some final thoughts. So Phil, I, I don't know, man, we, we covered a ton. And I think I, I learned, I don't know about you. I, I learned, a, 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 you know, Oh my God. So final thoughts, are. man. <laughs> you know, and we've talked about this a lot. Um, there's so much misunderstanding about vision, what a driver or even the pedestrian can see, you know, or, or can perceive. And oftentimes we find ourselves casting judgment on what they should have done based upon opinion more so than what they're capable of. And I think that's the bigger, uh, that's the bigger needle in that haystack that I think we need to be we need to be searching for is is uh, as a whole industry wide, uh, private you know or, or even in law enforcement uh, is what is the individual's capabilities you know what's their limitations what's their capabilities where's the study that supports you know what here's our scenario now where's the study that supports you know the the response was their response we may feel personally that, that the response was inappropriate but research may show no actually their response is statistically what it what it should be or what you'd expect to see yeah yep and and i would say you know for for my final thought of what i took away from everything today is i think you know it, it always seems like Everybody says, okay, if the crash happened during the day, if it's a pedestrian or bicycle crash first car, if it happened during the day, it's the car's fault. If it happened during the night, it's the bicycle or pedestrian's fault. Like that's always just the way it seems to be generalized. Um, and from everything we talked about, that may not be accurate. So um, I, yeah, I would, I would definitely say, you know, we need to stop just generalizing them like that. 
and start looking at a lot of other factors and, and like Phil said, comparing them to the research. So I do have one last question for you, Darlene. Nope. I apologize. Uh, um, so, so it's not my two cents. It's $20 a question. <laughs> Take it out of my bill. <laughs> <laughs> complacency. How much does complacency do you see or do you believe can play a role in a person's response? The first thing that I thought of with complacency is familiarity. And so sometimes drivers drive the same route day in, day out. And what happens is when we do something so much, any task, if we do it a lot, it becomes muscle memory and it becomes automatic. We don't really need to consciously attend to it necessarily. And so when drivers drive familiar routes, sometimes they go on autopilot and they don't necessarily you know, pay a whole lot of attention to what's going on. Um, and so in that respect, they can become complacent, you know, in very familiar environments. Whereas if you're driving in somewhere unfamiliar, you've got to pay attention to everything, street signs, um, you know, the, the layout of the roadway, everything. And so you're not as complacent in unfamiliar environments. Do you, is there study, is there any studies out there that's even attached to the IDRR or studies that you've looked at? Uh, I'm not asking to name them, but is there any studies out there that deal I am. with I want them named spot? verbatim with sources. No, I'm well, sorry. You know, <laughs> that deal with or, 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 you know, that go towards complacency. Hmm. Um, I would have to look into that. Because I think that also kind of plays into what we just talked about. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's so much more to it than simply when the object entered the, the beam of the headlight or when the pedestrian, yep. how far away was the pedestrian. There's just, yeah. Oh, I, I think, yeah. I think yeah. you literally opened Pandora's box today. Darlene, so well, this it, whole with with you and Jeff, yeah, and and that's I can't wait to have Swarupin yeah. to kind of to round this mm -hmm. out because really, you know, up until now, what you saw was oh, okay, headlights project, uh, so the the object should have been visible to the driver, the driver should have perceived it 250 feet in front of the vehicle, um, and then he should have reacted in one and a half seconds. Like yep. that's just up until now, up until last week when we really sat down with Jeff, I think that has been the understanding in the industry. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and I so, think it's wrong. I don't want to say it's wrong, yeah. but it's flawed. Yeah. Yeah, right. absolutely. So final thoughts, Darlene, you're our guest. You get the final say so. So you can call Phil out on anything that he said today. You can't call <laughs> me out. Um, I'm off. I'm off limits. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But final thoughts. What, what if you had uh, the, the ultimate pearl of wisdom to leave everybody with? What is it? Well, oftentimes, so I, I like to talk about the main takeaways of my research. And um, so during grad school, I interned at Trek Bicycle Corporation. I was a human factors and safety researcher there. And during my second summer there, I worked with the marketing team and my older lab mate to uh, design a safety campaign to help bicyclists to easily remember um, certain factors when they're getting ready to go out on a ride on shared roadways. And that's called the ABCs of awareness. And I think that this sums up my research very well. And so A stands for always on. So daytime running lights or, or running lights, both day and night use lights. Uh, B is for biomotion. So this goes for pedestrians and bicyclists. Highlight your movement. Um, if you're uh, walking or running um, or biking during the daytime, you can wear you know, brightly colored clothing on your, your moving extremities. So for pedestrians, um, that's your moving arms and legs. And then for bicyclists, that's your, your pedaling legs and feet. Um, and then you know, there's different elements for nighttime. And so that leads into C, which is contrast. 
um, make sure that you stand out against your background. So during the daytime, as I was mentioning just a second ago, um, you can wear brightly colored clothing. Um, and then at night, you can use retroreflective material or lights. And then another Trek employee added D for defensive riding. And that, that can go for anybody, um, both pedestrians, bicyclists, or drivers. Be aware of your surroundings. Know what's um, coming toward you or you know, in your, your um, environment so you can react in case there's a you know, threat of a collision. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. That's, that's great advice. And, but now since you, since you related that to pedestrians, you said highlight your movement when you're walking, all I can see now is Phil's going to be walking on crash scenes, like those inflatable waving air arm guys outside of the car dealerships. That's how Phil's going to be moving around at crash scenes. Well, from now well on. you just wait, Eric, because you know, when we, when we get together and like go downtown for a meeting or something like that, I'm going to launch you out into traffic and be like, should have highlighted the movement. Right. So, nope. Um, but yeah, so Darlene, I, man, I, I appreciate you taking so much time with us today and educating everybody, because like I said, I think this is stuff that, that not a lot of people yeah, talk to, talk about and, and we just assume that we know. Um, and, and I think you've just shown that all of us don't know anything when it yeah. comes to this uh, and, and there's more yeah. work that needs to be done. So, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. being on. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Well, everyone, that's going to wrap it up for the day. As always, jump over to Facebook and make sure you follow and join Crash Tech, the Expert Angle Group. Also, if you want to leave us feedback, have an idea for a show, or would like to be on a future show, head over to crashtechexpertangle.podbean.com and click the link on the right that says contact the show. The form will come up. Put anything that you want right in there. If you want more information on expert consulting services or training, visit us online at www.crashtechreconstruction.com. And finally, if you're a PI attorney, make sure you request to join the Crash Site Facebook group. Or if you're a defense attorney, make sure you request to join the Crash Site Defense Facebook group. Neither site contains any ads or spam. It's just a private community that brings experts from all different areas together with attorneys to collaborate or ask questions. So again, guys, thanks for tuning in. And remember, always leave your accident victims better off than you found them because at the end of the day, everything we're doing is for them. <laughs>